0: future fossils this is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time I've been getting my kicks out of alternating insane speculative cosmological conversations with more sort of grounded speculative bricks and mortar of the new civilization kind of conversations So after last week's superb conversation with Eric Wargo about time loops, precognition, retrocausation, and the unconscious, it feels appropriate to finally bring this interesting discussion with futurist Nathan Waters out of cold storage, where it has been sitting for the last year and a half. Nathan is somebody I met through the awesome community of Australian futurists I encountered while on tour there in 2017. He is a developer and community organizer for Ethereum in Australia and writing for the Hacker Noon blog on Medium. He has posted a couple of really fascinating articles about the future of autonomous vehicles, modular housing, the skill-sharing economy and the blockchain and how all of these things can come together to provide a much more equitable and enjoyable world for everybody. Now, admittedly, his vision is probably decades from fruition, and it's safe to say that it's going to be much more complicated (laughs) in practice than it is in theory. But as a millennial, I think I am pretty common in my frustration with the affordable housing situation In this time as well as the insane overhead required just to own and maintain a vehicle for those of us still living in places where car ownership is non negotiable and obviously there is the fabulous Bucky Fuller quote that we must do away with the absolutely specious notion that uh, everyone must have a job that jobs are the right way for human beings to be spending our time I mean obviously We're not talking about the end of work so much as we are talking about the end of a system in which most people are doing work they don't enjoy. So how do we fit all of these pieces together in an interesting and believable way? Well, Nathan is here to lay that all out for us. But first, I want to thank the two new Patreon supporters this week, Ryan McCarthy and Mike Lewinsky, As well as everyone else supporting the show on Patreon and helping me keep this program independent and free of corporate advertisements. Which obviously is significant when you're trying to probe the margins of the human experience for illuminating perspectives on the real and not just having conversations that serve the demonic goals of our attention economy. This week's kind of a big deal if you are a Patreon supporter, because I have just uploaded the first six full-length secret fossils, unedited and never-to-be-released episodes that include panel discussions, normal conversations, and public talks. And I will be contributing much more routinely to that secret warehouse of goodies in the months to come as well as hosting the next two Future Fossils book clubs one will be on Xi Jin Liu's Remembrance of Earth's Past trilogy the first Hugo Award winning Chinese science fiction I'm halfway through right now it's superb and then Eric Davis's High Weirdness Drugs Esoterica and Visionary Experience in the 70s an extraordinary look at the lives and works of Terence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, and Philip K. Dick. So uh, that book club participation is available to members at every level. And the secret episodes are available to the $10 a month level. But there's a ton of free stuff up also. And even if you're broke as fuck, I hope you will take advantage of those archives and all of that free music and interesting stuff. So thank you. And with that, let's not have you buckle in for this ride of a conversation because it's autonomous, self-driving, network learning, and as comfortable as your own home. Enjoy this chat with Nathan Waters. Nathan, I am so glad to have you on Future Fossils podcast.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, <laughs> before we dive into the the juicy details of the pieces that you've published recently and the vision that they share for the you know the future of of urban life, uh, I'd love for you to just tell people a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the you know the future and the you know specifically the future of of living and and working and and why these things matter to you and all that yeah
1: yeah yeah um so i guess it's just this whole question of like what's your background it's always like oh where do i start <laughs>
0: <laughs> start <laughs> I in australia born, hopefully
1: i was born in a small rural town <laughs> um so yeah, I was born in a, in a small rural, rural town, I guess I'll start there, and then I went to university uh, a bit about an hour south of uh, Sydney, and i uh, only just recently moved up to Sydney in about the, the past year or so, um, and I, I guess like I've always been into just talking about the future. So uh, I first met my my one of my best mates uh, in year 11 uh, at school, and we basically quickly came to the realization that... The idea of a job is just a terrible, terrible concept. <laughs> <laughs> I I think of it now, I think of jobs now as modern day slavery. Um, You've got to be careful with that word, obviously, because um, it's, you know, it's not actual slavery, but it is a type of slavery. I think we'll look back in the future at jobs and think of them in, this, in a similar way to how we look back at slavery now. Um, because it's a whole bunch of wasted minds, capital and human capital and potential, um and essentially we're just working to make other people rich. Um, so that was that's kind of the basis of like um, my thinking. And then throughout university, I did a, a business degree and a um, startup doing a comp side degree, trying to learn like I basically wanted to get into startups because startup startups were meant to be the way to kind of avoid getting a job um, <laughs> and to change the world. But then quickly you realize, well, mostly startups are all about making money and making widgets and incremental progress, um, something that gives you catch flow and you can actually you know, generate income and profits and sell to someone else. Um, so yeah, then, then I started doing uh, so myself and the same mate, Tristan Grace, uh, we did a thing called high 45 throughout university, which is uh, we used to just sit on the couch for about an hour or two every week, drink some beers and just talk about the future. That's pretty awesome. Go, go look up uh, high 45, HIV E four five on, on YouTube really old videos of us looking like we're 12 on a couch. <laughs> um, were, did some you,
0: stuff. were you write about the future?
1: Yeah, 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 mostly. Um, so that's, that's where I think a lot of what we predicted is still kind of playing out now. Um, you know, th- there's obviously the little things like, you know, whenever you go too narrow in your predictions, like we were really big on Google Glass at one stage. It's like, yeah, and that kind of failed. But the idea of wearable HUDs and AR, like daily AR tech glasses, that's inevitable. But Google Glass is not.
0: <laughs> well, we'll you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, that one that one I think retreated to a safe distance and is just biding its time until it's ready. Until we're ready for the second yep. coming. Uh, it's but but <laughs> I'm also I'm also a former Google Glass evangelist, so we're both we're both wrong, I guess.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. And yeah, throughout uni like so you know we would basically uh we lived in a share house with a whole bunch of other techy mates um and we would smoke a ton of weed and just talk about the future and technology and where it's all going and i think that really helped kind of discover um just yeah the trajectory long term trajectory of like the logical rational steps of of tying it with exponential technology and tying it with um i guess just kind of economic trends and trying to work out where it's all going um so yeah, that's good. And then I did another thing for a while, about a year and a half. I did a thing where I do. It was called Future F U T A W E Future, like like uh, Jason Silver's like you know shots of all thing. <laughs> I was trying to be like the Australian uh, version of Jason Silver. I didn't quite get there.
0: <laughs> well, you've got to um, deny it's, it's you've sorry. got to deny death a whole lot more if that's going <laughs> to
1: work out for you. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I was doing like these daily little Snapchat videos, just uh, a, a new future idea each day, and just pushing it out on Snapchat, trying to get people to reply and then pushing that up to YouTube. Um, so that's kind of the futurist background. And I've, I've just been involved in startups for probably the last 15 years, trying to get something off the ground and constantly you know, jumping to the next thing because I get too many projects at once. Um, and then the blockchain scene, I've been into that for quite a while. So uh, again, the same, mate, we we're, were mining Bitcoins back in, I think maybe like 2010, when they were 50 cents each, getting one per day on our, on our regular shitty computers that we just be- recently bought um so mind a fair few of those i lost a fair few sadly <laughs> um and then the the ethereum crowd sale came around and uh, should have put some more into that i <laughs> uh, didn't really get around to that um, but i started up the pseudo ethereum meetup in sydney so so we run that that's huge now it's like two and a half thousand members a monthly uh, meetup around ethereum um, and actually, you get, just recently, twenty
0: five hundred people there, like in person, every month. Or how does that? I don't that... know.
1: But yeah, twenty five hundred members. But um, we've got, uh, I think we get about three hundred turn up per month. We have to cap it, uh, usually with the venues. Yeah. So that that's pretty fun. Um, that whole space is just fascinating. Um, we can get more into that later. Yeah. Um, and and recently, I'm I'm just about to start a role as um Australian community manager for Consensus. So that'll be pretty cool as well. Yeah.
0: So you have a few years under your belt thinking about specifically decentralization and you know peer to peer systems and you know a a yeah, I think about you know you're talking about the end of jo- of the job is that that well, famous yeah. bucky fuller quote where he says we must do away with the absolutely specious notion that one must have a job in order to make a living and that's like that's it i think that that's really the promise when you hear people talk, like Peter Diamandis talking about abundance, yeah. the the idea seems to be to get our heads out of our asses, out of this like uh, millennial anxiety, long enough, you know, to 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 like pause and look around and remember that the whole mission of technological progress for thousands of years was to get us to a point where we could indulge in leisure and creativity. And like, that's what the word scholar scholarship school actually stems from the Greek for leisure. So, (laughs) so on that note, like, I want to invite you to, to talk a little bit about the extraordinary wastefulness of our resource use today and how you think that some of the technologies that we're cultivating now might lead to a world in which we're wasting a whole lot less effort on jobs that we don't have to do so that we have a lot more time to do the things that we enjoy.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think I, I love reading this this little mini story recently about how capitalism is kind of like an AI paperclip maximizer, <laughs> where it's, its entire intention is to use all the world's resources to make more capital. <laughs> Instead of making paperclips, it's all about making capital. And I think that, that's definitely the situation we're in now. So, I mean, like, capitalism is very kind of closely tied to the idea of jobs, um, the employer employee relationship, and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, think, I think we're definitely in a, in a time where capitalism's got us to this point where, it's, you know, we, have a, we kind of have this technological abundance now as a result of capitalism, but now it's kind of just almost an existential threat, and we need to transition quickly to something else. Otherwise, things are going to get really bad really fast. Um, and so uh, the reason I kind of focus on, on jobs and income is that, so I think to change the, to change the whole society globally to a different economic model that, that's more sta- sustainable um, in the long term, I think you need a catalyst point. So governments could probably do it or we could wait for a massive global collapse um, to then put into it, put in a new system. But I think if you're trying to do something outside of the political sphere and using you know leveraging exponential technology and leveraging the economic drivers that we currently have in society, um, I th- the thing that I'm really focused on, and I think is could be the the big catalyst is job automation. Um, because ultimately, if someone's job is automated, they lose their purpose, they lose their income they're basically almost like free falling. And so they'll grab for whatever system you have in place that just gives them those two things, you know, income purpose. (laughs) And if that that new economy is like a parallel economy that is transitioning us out and away from capitalism, then people will go for that. It's kind of like the good version of, you know, the cryptocurrency bubble at the moment. People are like, you know, people have said that, you know, the entire economy right now is just so shit and it's so like, you know, disconnected from reality and people are like completely... They're like, what is going on? And then they see this this crypto bubble going up and they're like, oh, sweet, I can make some quick money off that. That's my escape route. And so they're kind of like almost like rushing to the exit. But the problem with the crypto bubble right now is it's very, all the economic incentives are aligned, but they're still, they're not designed in such a way where they lead to a positive social outcome. They're creating more wealth inequality they're creating more Competition and all—it's almost like all the worst things in our current economy just kind of exacerbated inside a tinier, a tinier little economy.
0: <laughs> totally. There's that the New York Times just published that article talking about Bitcoin Nouveau Rich, and it was all—it was like this. You know, I invested four hundred thousand dollars into Ethereum at eighty cents. It's like, oh, you had four hundred thousand yeah. yeah. dollars when exactly. Ethereum was it? Okay, so you know, clearly we're just carrying. This digital feudalism yep. into you know a new space, unless we engineer a different way. You know, and I, and I and I like that idea that people really the loyalty is to what works. You know, and like a lot of the time we don't really have an alternative, so we're stuck in this sort of uh, Stockholm syndrome you know, victim-captor relationship to uh, the social contracts we don't remember signing. And yet the opportunity here is to, you know, is that we can actually create an alternative in parallel, you know, or in in some way, uh, you know, integrated within the system. I keep thinking of, I don't know why, this is such a dork thing, but I keep thinking of the, uh, in Battlestar Galactica, when the battle star <laughs> when the ship is starting to fall apart from age and use and so they they patch it with cylons like cyborg technology and so you know it's like i can i can see us and in many ways that's what we already have that's what the state already is you know is this it's not really the state anymore it's not really the united states or australia it's it's basically like a uh, the corporations have patched it up and they're holding it all together from the inside and it's just sort of the the facade or the appearance of, a, of of you know a national government but I digress so let's look specifically because I think I think you d- you've done such a good job in your work uh, with the medium articles and talking about this stuff let's look specifically at housing and <laughs> at and at uh, at cars because when you talk about yep. that AI paperclip generator which which by the way like I actually this is, this is a classic, for those of you who don't know, this is a, a classic uh, rhetorical tool in the conversation around AI talking about what if we built this machine that was designed to turn everything into paperclips and it just ate the whole world and replaced us all with paper clips. And I met a guy who works at Google in the machine learning lab specifically to avoid the paperclip scenario. So like that that paperclip scenario actually makes sense when you zoom out and you look at you post this this uh, aerial photograph of a lot used to hold newly manufactured unsold cars and it's just this <laughs> a- apocalyptic expanse of brand new consumer goods that are just sitting there unused and like all of the rare earth minerals going into that shit anyway yeah so that's we begin with the problem
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's just start with housing. So um, one of my posts, uh, it's usually the post that isn't the most popular. The post that's the most popular is the dreamy, driverless hotel rooms. The post where I I spend like 10 minutes talking about how shit the world is in regard to housing. um, Nobody likes to read that. (laughs) Um, So I did a massive post basically explaining, and and mostly I look at it through the context of Australia, just because Australia is like one of the the most craziest housing bubbles in the world right now. uh, And I live here. So in Australia, the, the median house price in Sydney is over a million dollars. It's only just started to kind of dip down over the last three months, but it's been a massive bubble for 40 years. And what's really driving that is not just pure supply demand. Like you would, you would imagine that supply demands should be, a, it's always going to drive up housing and, and land because land is always a fixed asset. And, you know, people usually want to live in the cities and they usually want to live near the beaches. So, obviously, that's a, a factor that's always going to drive up housing and the cost of housing. You can't, almost can't avoid that unless you do the decentralized, you know, van home thing. Um, but in Australia, we have all these tax incentives for property investors and property owners. So, in Australia, there's a thing called negative gearing where basically you can have a, an investment property and you can be losing money on that property because usually the rent doesn't cover the the repayments on your mortgage, your, your loan to buy the house. Um, and so what they can do is the government gives you the ability to claim those losses on your income tax. So it's like a win-win. So you lose money on your investment property, it's literally making you zero money, or losing it, but you then get to claim that off your tax. So that's one cool incentive. Then they offer another one called a capital gains discount tax. So I think the way it works is basically when you sell your property, um, the first couple hundred thousand or whatever, you get a 50% discount on the tax. And on top of that, you've, you've got the... The Reserve Bank of Australia has kept interest rates super super low, so they're down at like one point five percent. So it's just basically encouraging more people to keep pushing money into this into this bubble, and it's pretty much it's very very similar to what happened in the U.S. with the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, and and there's a whole bunch of people saying, guys, like Australia is like ex- following the exact same thing that happened with the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> that, and that's just what's happening now. Um,
0: Oh but humans are we're so good at that. It's like, oh no, no, that's that's different. That's It's fine.
1: Yeah, we're, we're that's not an issue. Not an issue. <laughs> um, and ultimately like I love I love diving super deeper into the the actual like like I'm a little bit of a Marxist at heart, but I, I kind of don't like to I'm a little bit of an ism of everything. I like parts of capitalism, socialism, communism, Marxism and libertarianism. Um, this is where i like, I'll talk about periods later, it's kind of a combination of all those things. But I think ultimately the big thing is that the moment you can own property privately, um, it's in your best interest to try and maximize your return on that. And you will try and, so if you own it privately, you, want to, you obviously want to invest it and then sell it for a higher price later. The same reason you buy Bitcoin or crypto now, because you want to speculate on it to sell for a higher price later. And you privately own the crypto, and you privately own the house, which gives you kind of like the legal rights to to do that to speculate. And I think that is a fundamental core aspect of, of capitalism. is really what leads to a lot of these other issues. That so that's the fundamental of like if I can own this property, then I can sell it to someone at a pro, at a profit, or I can then rent it out and, and uh, claim those economic rents. You know, the rentier class, the rent seeking behaviors that we have in this in the system. Um, those people make money for basically adding zero value to society. <laughs> Property investors might say, oh, no, no, we're helping, we're helping people uh, get housing and we're helping increase the supply of housing and shelter. But actually, no, most of the time, the loans that people get from the banks are used to buy existing properties to speculate on. And the only things that actually are used for new construction are luxury apartments because that's where you make the most profits. So I think in, in 2016 in the US, 80% of all new constructions were luxury, classed as luxury. Yeah, if you go read this this, this post, I've got that after that. That is insane. <laughs> I did see also yeah, yeah. in
0: that post, you mentioned that throughout much of the developed world, that uh 2016, it was rated 75% of all housing was considered unaffordable.
1: Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's, um, that's based on. Off a few markets. Yeah, so in 2016 more than 75% of housing markets were classed as unaffordable in Australia, Canada, Hong Kong, Ireland, Japan, New Zealand, Singapore, the United Kingdom and the United States.
0: Yeah, that's by the <laughs> that's by performanceurbanplanning.org uh, the demographia did the yeah, yeah. study. The yeah, the 13th annual demographia international housing affordability survey. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it's I think it's more serious than people knew.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's another <laughs> If you go global, there's another cool stat I wrote in there. It's uh, a study by the World, something, World Research Institute, it must be. Uh, estimated by 2025, over 1.6 billion people across 440 million households will lack access to secure, adequate, and affordable housing. So that's pretty intense. <laughs> so
0: so that's, that's part of the problem. And the millions and millions and millions of cars that we manufactured so that They can spend 95% of the time sitting in a garage or parking lot. That's another part of this.
1: And also houses, apparently. Um, There was another cool stat that I didn't mention. I I looked it up uh, recently that apparently the rooms inside a house, we only use them most of the time, 40% of the time. So 60% of of rooms in houses are not really used that often.
0: I think about this actually, with respect to my trip to Australia last year. So yep. one of the things that I noticed that I I actually took as a sign of affluence beyond what I'm accustomed to here in the U.S. Everywhere I went in Australia, people had an additional room in their house available for me as a guest to stay. And I was surprised because everyone I know in the U.S., unless they're like my parents' age, or or like living in Colorado where you know people have these houses that are, they're just like a grow operation you know yeah. in the basement and it's just like <laughs> it's basically a private you know it's like a business most people i know in the united states are are in a share house situation where every bedroom is rented out and so you know i found it kind of like promising and odd but like even in my own home i do think about that i think about how when i'm alone most of the day and I'm working from home and everyone else is out at their jobs. This house is just sitting here empty. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and it's a gorgeous home. And it's like, what? It's like, damn. I You know, like Doug Rushkoff talks about how people used to, like one block would have the barbecue and everyone on the block would get together for barbecue parties when he was growing up in New York. And now everyone needs their own barbecue. And I think... You know, like part of the part of the solution to this is technological, but part of it is also cultural or psychological. It's it's us unlearning the need for everyone to have their own little space. Like I, I noticed somebody commented on one of your Facebook posts about this saying, you know, that's all well and good, but I'm not sharing a bathroom.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so like what do you have to say to that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well so so I think it's 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 really just that natural extension of um people learning about i think there is a little bit of an awakening around, a whole around the whole like um sharing economy on demand uh you know like people you know people know of airbnb now they know of uber and as much as those are evil companies like they get the concept around sharing those things but it's like well just just take that that same concept a few more steps further and yeah like like now when i walk down the street and if you walk down the street after, say, 9 a.m., and you look at all the cars parked and all the all the houses, most of them, probably 90% are empty because the, the people have gone off to work to, to make someone else rich to earn a tiny bit of, of money on, on stagnant wages to then repay the, the empty car and the empty houses sitting at home that are actually owned by the bank. <laughs> That's a bizarre situation. Um, and then I've noticed lately more and more. So when I walk down the street, I've myself, I've had a bit of like a, a conscious awakening type thing where I, you see all the empty cars and you just get depressed. You're like, what the fuck? Why are these things sitting here just completely being unused? Um, and then on top of that, with, then you go, then you extend that to housing and you think, okay, well you can only ever be in one room at one time. So why are there all these empty rooms in the house? And you can understand why that needs to happen in, in, a, in a fixed housing situation. Um, I mean, you you could probably build you know things with like shared bathrooms and and shared laundries and stuff inside you know there's there's these kind of like co living type arrangement, shared kitchens and stuff like that. I don't think people are quite ready for that yet. A lot of a lot of people. So yeah, so this is where the this is where the the kind of driverless van homes idea came in. So I know a bunch of people already um, in Australia, and and it's pretty big in the US as well. I know in Silicon Valley and stuff where housing prices are just stupid. Um, people are living in vans and. The notion of living in a van, it, it it can vary from as little as literally just throwing a single mattress into the back of a tradey type, you know, crappy van where you can't stand up like that's super low end to all the way up to luxury RVs. And I think the happy medium, I wrote, I wrote this post and there's a couple of YouTubers now writing about, you know, van life and they're, they're making tons of money showing people the van life. There's this really cool YouTube channel uh, by these, this couple Beck and Eamon and they have a, a van where it's a sprinter van and they can stand up in it. It's got a you know queen size bed in the back that can convert into a futon. It's got running water. It's got it's all run on solar and they can plug it in. Um, they've got a fridge and they've got cupboard space. So, so to me, that's like—is
0: the engine running on solar? Uh, no. Okay. So, so right. these
1: these are all these are all like you know petrol or gas and the killer. Yes. All right. Uh, but I think that's cool. But it still has a lot of issues because you still have to manually drive it to where you need to park you still have to every night worry about where am I going to park it overnight that's safe you still have to worry about where's the nearest toilets where's the laundromats? how do I have a shower all these issues whereas so this is why I really love the idea of a driverless van home because when you can do that you can ideally get rid of the front cabin and the engine which gives you a lot more room you can ideally make the entire thing completely all electric and battery powered and solar powered and running off completely 100% solar energy And it can drive you automatically to the safe spots. So the safe overnight parking spots. You tap a button. It it, your your room, your house essentially comes and picks you up wherever you are, um, and drives you to a safe spot overnight. Or if you need to go to the toilet, you just (laughs) I love the idea of having like you know an Alexa or a Siri embedded into your van. And you just kind of yell out like toilet, (laughs) and it just it just drives you to the nearest toilet. So. I, so I mean, then, I might
0: opt in for the toilet being a permanent piece of this vehicle. But, yeah. You
1: could do that, too, yeah. But, uh, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people have an issue with having a toilet inside where they eat and sleep as well. It's,
0: fair enough, a lot fair of people
1: enough. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and as a way to solve housing affordability, too. So, back to the original idea of supply-demand, like, what you could do to solve the issue. I've thought about a few ways. So, you could either – government could solve housing affordability overnight if they really wanted to. But – they don't because there's no economic incentive for them to do that and most of the politicians own investment properties in australia uh the average politician federal politician owns 2.4 properties so it's in their best interest to maximize their own investments (laughs) so then the issue is okay well if you if you wanted to get into politics to change that um then it would take you probably 20 30 years to get into power to actually have a say to I mean, so we have the two, same two party system in Australia. So we have like liberals and not the, the liberals here are actually the far right and the, the labor. And then we have greens, which is a third party, but greens never have never had any power. Um, they're kind of like the balance, but they never had any, they've never been in government for um, 30 years or whatever. So yeah, the political route I don't know like the idea of. So then if you go back to pure economics, supply demand, you can either increase uh, supply of housing massively. So think like, 3D-printed houses, think Hyperloop stations out to remote areas where you build brand new cities. Because um, if you can increase supply of housing massively, then you drop the price because then there'd be less, you know, an oversupply of housing. But that's also very expensive and you've ultimately still got the land cost issue. You've still got to buy out land. All land is already owned by someone. And so they can basically charge whatever they want to.
0: God, that's crazy to think.
1: Um, and especially to like people. So there's that idea that Di- like Peter Diamandis always talks about. He's like, oh no, housing affordability is going to be fine because we'll just sit in driverless cars and we'll live like three out three hours outside of the cities, so we'll or have hyperloop stations, or we'll just work in VR and be able to do stuff remotely. And like, yeah, that could happen. But ultimately, people still want to live in cities because that's where, first of all, that's where the jobs are. But even if we remove that idea of having to get a job in a city people are still going to want to live in cities because that's where the social activity is. That's where the ideas are. That's kind of like where the hive mind is. And I don't think you'll ever be able to fully replicate that perfectly in VR or AR until we have something a bit more immersive than slapping on the head. that's
0: That's also totally contrary to the, you know, as this sort of, you know, like Greg Egan, Australian science fiction writer, Greg Egan, in his novel Distress, talks about a 2049 where the suburbs are the new center of activity because of virtual reality and the the you know the center the urban areas have been hollowed out and become this like bohemian squatter paradise i I don't believe that you know and i don't i don't you know uh that idea stands kind of contrary to i just watched this video with uh with chris anderson of ted interviewing stewart brand of the Long Now Foundation and Stuart Brand was talking about how, Yeah, yeah, I'll watch this one. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. How we how we would uh sort of gather into urban areas as yes. you know precisely because of that that network benefit. You know, the these like they become the you know, they they're just increasingly as they become more and more densely networked, they become this powerful advantage, you know, this multiplier effect. With uh, economic activity, creative activity, you know, to the point where I think it scales to the asymptote that Robin Hansen describes in The Age of M, where he talks about if if we get to a point where we're digitizing human beings, then the server farms running populations of digital humans end up being like prohibitively distant from one another like the 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 rate of cultural exchange within each server farm is so fast that like the subjective experience of sending a message even along a, a fiber optic is <laughs> like it takes it would take longer than sending a message by boat like back in the seventeen hundreds you know yeah, so yeah. so we, we so like these these hubs of cultural activity much like you know Manhattan like people talk about Manhattan being um, you know that that. When you're in Manhattan, it's like the whole world is in Manhattan, and nothing exists outside of it. And it's like they become these singularities, where it's like yeah. it's actually kind of yeah.
1: You know, I, I don't collective intelligence.
0: Yeah, I don't yeah. see. I don't see how. It, I mean, in a world that we we have to accept right that the future will probably give us both, but it is hard for me to understand how we would reconcile that vision of futurity with like the sort of uh, event horizon that occurs from hyper in cities. And then this like notion that we can just sort of sprawl out and go wherever and be like VR ex-urbanites. I don't know. <laughs> and that
1: was the other thing he mentioned in that TED Talker uh, is that uh, by centralizing into more cities, centralizing, but you, know, you still have tons of cities around the world, but it actually helps the environment as well. So we don't want to really be sprawling out. The more we sprawl out, the more we have to destroy nature to do so so one thing i love about the idea of this let's just go to the driver's hotel rooms thing we haven't mentioned that yet so
0: yeah 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 <laughs> well we got to bridge the autonomous vehicles to yeah hotel rooms right because there's what what happens there is the conflation of the vehicle in the building and like that's yeah. that's an evolutionary moment like that's worth discussing i'd love to hear what you have to say about that specifically
1: okay yeah yeah so so everyone's always you know there's a massive hype around driverless vehicles right now and you've probably heard of the idea of okay once we have driverless vehicles you can get rid of the steering wheel it can drive you to work and that means you can do basically anything you want in the car so you could watch a movie you could you know eventually maybe go to sleep you could do some work during the car so a lot of them are a lot of these ideas that most people have come up with are very kind of just incremental steps the idea of like okay on your morning commute Rather than commuting and, and wasting all that time sitting in traffic, you can do you know work on the way into work, uh, and that's that's pretty cool. But the the cool thing about driverless vehicles or self-driving vehicles or autonomous vehicles, I don't know exactly what is the best phrase to use yet, is that eventually they're essentially just rooms on wheels because once you remove the the engine, because most engines will just be electric engines, which are kind of they're basically just in you know, a Tesla, they're just attached to the wheel, and once you remove the uh, driver's compartment and the steering wheel, then essentially you're, you're just really left with a a shell or a box or a room on top of a drivetrain. And so electric drivetrain is just, uh, you know, your four wheels, your two electric motors and your battery pack. And that's really all that self-driving cars will be with a few extra sensors, radar, LIDAR uh, and cameras. And so then that gets really, really interesting. I think the first iterations of these things, they're definitely going to have to still have all the safety features. You'll probably still have to sit into a, sit into a chair and wear a seatbelt because the danger is other other human drivers on the road that might crash into you. So I, that was actually one comment I had on some of my posts saying that, oh, you're never going to get rid of the safety features and stuff like that. It's like, well, yeah, probably while there are human drivers on the road, that's going to probably be a limitation for quite a while. But once we go beyond that, then you can have this idea of literal runes with basically like, you know, zero, zero safety features, zero seatbelts, zero airbags, because these things will get so good that they will just, you know, 99.999% of the time, they won't crash. It would be very, very rare for anything to ever crash because these things will be aware of each other, be able to be adapting to each other, and they learn. So the cool thing about the Tesla autopilot thing at the moment is every time a car actually learns a new situation, uh, it's it's running... Last I heard, it, it's actually running a, a simulated self-driving mode on the car, on every single Tesla car that was produced after, I think, like 2016 sometime every single car is running uh, an onboard simulation of a self-driving mode. Because what Tesla aims to do is they're running this across the entire fleet. And before they can switch on a uh, fully autonomous driverless mode, they need to prove to all the regulators that we've been running billions and billions of kilometers of or miles of uh, self-driving mode, and we can prove to you that there were zero ca- crashes. And we actually, we would have done a better job than the human driver. Um, and the cool thing is, is every time that, Every time that one car learns, the entire fleet learns. So imagine when we get to the point where every single driverless car, every time it learns something, an individual car, every, the entire global fleet of driverless cars learns. And so it's inevitably going to become so much better than any human driver in existence. Uh, it'll get so good that I think we'll, and we will have to ban human driving um, on roads. It's just an inevitability.
0: Because
1: mm. human drivers would be, just be so much worse. <laughs> And they are. They are now. Like they are provably now. It's just a scale issue, you know. Um we need to have absolute certainty that the driverless cars are better and have driven more miles and more kilometers than than humans. It's um, funny
0: it's funny when you think uh when you look back about hundred and twenty years ago to the writing around the introduction of the automobile into society. It's the it's a the critique is that human beings can't possibly know how to steer a vehicle of that size as well as a horse. That there's like, look, you know, like the horse. We trust horses. We don't. <laughs> we, we don't trust human <laughs> operators. And you know, it's like it's so obvious that you know our our apocalypse is Mad Max. Like I think about, for one, the kinship that you know, between the United States and Australia. But but for two, the uh the words of historian William Rowan Thompson who who talks about the little Venus figurines that they find in all these, you know, these Paleolithic sites and how little we understand about them and how, how we're drawing our assumptions into that. And he's like, Imagine, you know, twenty thousand years from now, looking back on modern society and being like these people worshipped these cars. Like, they're just everywhere. They made so many of them. Their whole their whole culture was preoccupied with the manufacture of, of these vehicles. And the only real rite of passage that we have in our society, other than getting, like, shit-faced, is learning to actually direct this thing. So, like, what you're talking about just seems to me to be such a... a like an invagination, like a total reversal of everything that we take for granted uh, in our, our like, like this weird little window of time in our society.
1: Yeah, and, and even the the flipping of the whole social status of buying a car. Like, I think it's I, I cringe anytime anyone buys a luxury car. Or they they pose in front of it. They'll they'll post a picture <laughs> of them on Facebook and they'll pose in front of their luxury car. Or it'll be their cover image on on Facebook. And I literally like. I jump in now and I'm like, you're a dick. Like, what is wrong with you? Because <laughs> a lot of them are like people who made crypto winnings, and they're like, look at my luxury car I just bought my crypto winning. I'm like, you're a, you're a fucking dick, man. Like, <laughs> go do something useful with that money. <laughs> so yeah, that's, I mean, I didn't.
0: I want to circle back around to the the driverless hotel rooms, but you bring this up. I think it's really vital that I see you on social media campaigning for people who have stumbled into extraordinary wealth as early comers to the table of this this distributed technological abundance and being like, hey, why don't you do something useful with this money? Like, hey, by the (laughs) way, if you're listening to this podcast and you accidentally became a multimillionaire over the last few years, like, I think there's there seems to be a democratization of the need for financial literacy and like a sort of like philanthropic education or or like people need to learn how to invest not just in projects like vaporware or beta projects that deliver high returns but in longer term projects that are poised to cultivate ecosystems that will later bear fruit and new nu- nourish and support other things down the road. And like, I don't know how, how you think we're going to be able to cultivate that kind of longer term thinking around wealth, but I don't know.
1: Well, I think something on that point. I think something that's interesting with the crypto scene is that even though things like ICOs and token sales right now are kind of a little bit scammy, hypey, and you know, there's so many issues. I, I think the version two of that or the next iterations of that model, I think makes sense. Cause if you've made, say, for example, if you've made your money in Ethereum and you've got a ton of it, well, then you don't really want to exit that out in fiat as much as it's all valued in fiat. And that's kind of like why you're wealthy. <laughs> you know, you're not wealthy because you have, you know, a thousand Ethereum. You're wealthy because you have, you know, three, four, you know, five million dollars Australian or US. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a model where if you can encourage people to to reinvest back into the ecosystem that's actually trying to make things happen, then naturally your your other holdings will go up in value. Like if you make other things on the Ethereum platform more valuable, then your holdings will go up. But I, I, I just don't know why people don't just, my whole thing's all about like changing the world and legacy. Like I don't give a shit about money because money is just like a means to an end. And, you know, if <laughs> When when you die, no one's going to give a shit that you bought a fucking Mercedes-Benz luxury car. Like They're going to give a shit about what you actually did with your life and and how many people did you impact and have you actually built a lasting legacy? Have you made the world a better place or have you just made more widgets to sell to people?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, dude. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about the self-driving hotel room.
1: Driverless hotel rooms. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So I... This is the cool thing. So I wrote a post about driverless van homes, and that went okay. Like, got a bit of bit of traction, but mostly people are like, oh, "Why would I want to live in a van home? <laughs> Sounds terrible. Who wants to live in a van?" But ironically, my idea about driverless hotel rooms is exactly the same vision as driverless <laughs> van homes. Exactly, just with different wording. And I specifically went into writing. I wanted to write the 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 title. Uh, the title of called it driverless hotel rooms because I was like, well. People will laugh this up more than living in a van, and they fucking did. Like, so the, the post now has thirty thousand reads, eighty thousand people have seen it, and I've got like a ton of tweets. Most of them are positive. There's a few people who are like, "That's a terrible idea," blah blah. blah. Anyway, so so if you go off this notion <laughs> that if you go off this notion that we're going to have driverless rooms, then the idea is okay. Well, imagine driverless hotel rooms. So I started off the post with like a little bit of a um, you know imagine if like a little bit of a story thing, and the idea was that. You know, you would land in Sydney, or it can be any airport, and ideally, you've I, I kind of pitched my uh my little uh my my Purism project as well. I said you've landed in Sydney because you've just got a, a gig pop up on your tourism on your feed through tourism and it's offered you this this project that you're really passionate about. Um, and so you instantly caught a plane to Sydney the next week, and or the next day, and you haven't booked accommodation at all. You haven't bothered doing any of that. You get off the plane, and you're your AI or your personal assistant basically says, "Hey, do you want to do you want to get a room?" And you're like, "Yep." And so the moment you say that, a, a driverless hotel room can can rock up and pick you up, and you get in, and it says, "Hey, where do you want to where do you want to go to?" You're hungry, and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I, I'd love to get a, a beer or some food." Uh, and it says, "Cool, that'll be on its way." Five minutes later, a drone comes and lands on the on the roof of your of your driverless room while it's driving to its destination. Lowers the food through the compartment, and you you have you have your dinner. So I, I think the idea of these things being these luxury autonomous driverless rooms where they're, they're modular. So you would have the one you would step into would be a uh, you would have, it would have a bed, it would have a, a small kitchenette, it would have a, a seating area, it would have a bathroom module, and it would be driving off to either any destination you want. So if you want to say cool, take me to Bondi Beach, it goes there. Or if you want to say hey, I'm, I'm ready to to crash for the night, like take me to a to the hotel, and it could drive to the hotel. And and the thing that I kind of added on top of what's already really out there, and I'm sure other people have come up with the idea before, but the idea of just vertically stacking these, because if you get to a point where driverless rooms become, you know, first of all, feasible, a reality, and and people actually want to use them, then naturally you're going to have to go vertical because you can't have. <laughs> You can't have you know hundreds of millions of these things just littering the streets and clogging up traffic and creating a worse situation. <laughs> um, so you're going to have to go vertical. But going vertical is, is really no different to like it, it sounds like a crazy idea, but we already have skyscraper technology. We already have we already know how to build towers. We already know how to build giant industrial elevator lifts. So apart from having to maybe reinforce these towers a bit more than you would usually with like a normal apartment complex or a normal hotel complex um i think it's all feasible so the idea would be that your when you're ready to crash out your your driverless hotel room would drive to the hotel tower and there could be many of these towers and then it lifts it lifts the entire room up could go up 30 40 you know 100 stories tall and then it just slots you into your position and the cool thing is that you wouldn't you wouldn't just be completely confined to these single rooms. These rooms are modular. So that the idea would be it could slot in next to another room, that entire side panel opens up, and now you've doubled your space. And that notion opens up a whole bunch of opportunities and for how these things can interact and, and fit together like, like Lego bricks.
0: Mm, so on that note, I think it's time we come to the most serious part of this discussion. Okay. Because what I witness here is the third act of a historical dialectic that moves from the nomadic migration of early peoples following food resources to the sedentary agricultural civilization. And then now, you know, it should be said that, I mean, this is, the the classic uh, wandering and then settlement of of the Jews, you know, the the sort of like fudging of their covenant with God, not to put God in the temple, but to leave God in the wilderness. I feel a a, a driverless wandering Jew in my heart that <laughs> that wants some way to reconcile feeling like a person of place, feeling like I, I have a sense of continuity, feeling like. You know that there's a there's a, a a linear course that describes my life in some way. Uh, you know that I come from somewhere that I'm going somewhere. The the basic narrative need of an ego in an age of metamorphic change, <clears throat> but at the same time, like there's this uh, this nomadic spark. You know the 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 fractality of it the you know the the nonlinearity of our human existence that manifests as the repressed nomadic peoples you know within these sedentary societies and it seems to me now that this model that you're describing is the synthesis man like that that this is yeah, like yeah. that this is the moment where we we get the best of both worlds where like the american dream in the sense that the american dream is the buddy buddy road trip you know where you're having fun as you drive off into the horizon on an endless adventure of discovery is now not only realized but sustainably realized in a way that people can like you know party and jerk off and do whatever while they're living in a you know a thing you know a space that they can you know more or less claim but is constantly bringing them into new space like it just the new dimensions here to me are just so fucking extraordinary
1: and and it's sustainable in a long-term thing so that's something i was thinking about as well so we're the prediction is that we'll have nine billion humans on the planet by like 2040, and that's where it, kind of where it will cap out. Um, so the idea is, a lot of people talk about how the the neoliberal doctrine is all about trying to bring down the Western world so that the as the developing world is rising and their living standards and they every you know, everyone in the developing world wants to live like Americans and Australians, and so you have to kind of have the <laughs> the lifestyles of the Americans and Australians in the in the first world kind of meet halfway so that everyone kind of balances out but well there's there's absolutely no way we can have 9 billion people living in mcmansions and giant luxury apartments and all this other crap um but at the same time you don't want to end up, you don't want to have people living in you know a dystopian reality where it's like you know a lot of people have already mentioned ready, ready player one with the stacked <laughs> yeah. acts, rbs and stuff like that and, and that's, that's, that's a huge fear of my life yeah <laughs> It is a huge fear of mine that this is where it could go because it's obviously going to be a transitionary thing. It's not going to go instantly to this reality where we're all living in these giant luxury towers. But the thing thing that I loved about prefacing the whole concept as a hotel room is people naturally think of hotels as least luxury-type experiences most of the time, um, unless they're in like a shitty, you know, uh, (laughs) cheap motel. So I love the idea of... I actually ran the numbers, and I'd, I'd love to do a blog post on this, but I, I know that people would definitely take it the wrong way. So I ran the numbers on um, if you took 9 billion humans on the planet and you assigned them with uh, their own kind of living space. So, so the way I see these, these rooms playing out is that you're going to have to, for these things to dock and to be uh, vertical and connect together and be modular, you're going to have to have them adopt a standard globally. Um, and so either the auto manufacturing industry industry can come together and create a standard, or they just end up adopting the shipping standard. So shipping containers, um, if you measure them out, uh, there's three standards: there's 10 foot long, 20 foot long, and 40 foot long. 40 foot's probably a bit too long for moving around cities, but I think the perfect ones are 10 foot and 20 foot. So imagine 10 foot for things like your bathroom modules, your laundry modules, your your smaller like cafe type modules. And twenty foot for your that would be your standardized kind of room size. Now these things wouldn't they wouldn't look like you know they obviously wouldn't look like shipping containers with windows. It's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be like you know just the dimensions. So I ran the numbers on okay what if you had if you assign all nine billion people on the planet with a um, maybe everyone gets their own twenty foot bedroom module and that's theirs they own that that that's where they keep their belongings. So this also helps reduce consumerism because you have less space to store shit. Uh, but that's the, that's their home. That's their bedroom. That's their cool thing. Then you assign ev- all those nine billion people again an extra add-on module that is interchangeable. So that could be a living room module. That could be a literally anything on request. And if you made this like the standard base, base level bare minimum, um, it's very small. Like if you if you put two twenty-foot um, containers side by side and you measure out the dimensions. It's still actually way bigger than most people's um, small units and way bigger than by far most people's uh, share rooms in, in, in share houses and stuff like that. But I think the psychology of it is that because you can ideally switch these things out and have new rooms come to you on demand, I feel like psychologically, even though it is kind of a small space to live in, psychologically, it would feel like you're living in a massive apartment um, mm-hmm. because the moment you need something, it just comes to you. Anyway, so I ran the numbers. If you look at the (laughs) – if you just do a a, kind of like a prism-type shape, um, so the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is about 840-odd metres tall. Um, So if you assigned all 9 billion people with two 20-foot containers and you then um, stack those up vertically 800 metres tall in a a kind of pyramid-type shape, um, I worked out you could house all 9 billion people on the planet in about 112,000 of those 800-metre-tall towers. So imagine replacing all of the urban sprawl on the planet, and and just having 112,000 um, towers, obviously in like all of the city centres, you know, Hong Kong, New York, like all those places, and everything else can just be returned to green spaces. So green entertainment spaces, return to nature. Um, all these towers can be interconnected by a hyperloop tunnels. Um, so you wouldn't really have much transportation on the surface. And so those 112,000 towers, that's mostly just housing. I I figure you'd have, like, maybe an extra, you know, add an extra, say, 100,000 towers just for, like, entertainment areas, um, shopping malls, you know, co-working spaces, offices. So, let's just go, let's round it up to 200,800-metre-tall towers. That provides all of humanity, safe, secure, luxury, um, on-demand, dynamic kind of housing situations on a tiny, tiny footprint. Um, and that would be truly amazing.
0: Have you heard of Paolo Soleri's Lean Linear City? No. This is very close to what you're describing. Paolo Solari was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. He split, I think, in 1949 and went on to develop a a concept he called the Arcology, which was the merger of architecture and ecology. With the building... representing this organism and oriented and like embedded situated within the landscape so as to you know capitalize on passive heating and cooling and uh, you know his whole thing was if you look at the modern city of these segregated buildings it's like two and a half dimensions that you don't have the interconnectivity above street level That would allow that it was an issue of efficiency again, and like uh, the the kind of dense, rich cultural opportunity that we're losing by keeping all of these skywalks out of the picture, basically. So his his city was a uh, a three dimensional mesh, you know, that's like embedded in a canyon, so that it's catching the sunlight along the whole face and it, the, they were connected by maglev trains. The long linear awesome. city was this like particular manifestation of it. So like your, your vision of that is actually completely compatible and then just adds the dimension of the modules of that city themselves being interchangeable. So like this all goes into a sort of a holistic paradigm of, biomimicry expressed through distribution of many things that were once centralized for example each wheel having a motor associated with it rather than one motor driving the entire car so i feel like this is the place where uh purism steps into it and i think that uh, like, yeah. yeah this would be a good this is good be a, a good spot to pluck that okay.
1: <laughs> you know? um yeah, so so I have like basically two. These are my two kind of lifelong passions. So, so I'm actually planning on on starting on this project, trying to build the driverless van rooms, start, starting with like van homes. Um, I'm going to start on that in a few years' time. But I love this idea. So driverless van homes is all about really bringing the living the living costs down to almost zero and then below. <laughs> um, and then purism is all about giving people uh, the ability to express to them to the economy as a whole what they're interested in, what they're passionate in, and and what their skills are. So, that work can then come directly to them. So, the way I, I'm planning on doing that is uh, leveraging cryptocurrencies and leveraging tokens and, and the whole blockchain decentralization sphere and really focusing on the idea of skill tokens. So, with the reason why job automation is, is a big scary thing that's coming on the horizon is that we are very homogenous in our roles. You know, when you go to a party and you say, you know, what do you do? And someone replies, I'm an accountant. That means that they probably work at one company, at one desk, 40 hours a week, you know, Monday to Friday, and that's what they do. They're an accountant. So the problem with that is when accounting gets automated, not just their job, but their entire industry, the model that that guy is going to have to do, or that girl, they're going to have to then um, go back to university, do another three, four-year degree, maybe become a lawyer, and then they become a lawyer, and then that gets automated. But at the same time, like you know, an accountant, an accountant isn't just good at accounting you know humans are just you know they're just interested in good at you know what their job role is that accountant is has a you know a vast array of unique and diverse skills and interests but the economy doesn't give a shit about it nor does it know anything about that um, so what i'd love to do is actually quantify people's skill sets and have them quantify them their own skill sets and interests in, in a way that is recognizable universally across the economy so the way to do that is to have user created skill tokens It'd be like a cryptocurrency, like Ethereum, like Bitcoin, but it actually, the value inherent in that token actually represents the person's skill. And the more of those skill tokens you earn represents your skill level, a bit like a role-playing, like an RPG. So you might have, that accountant might have, you know, they might have earned 100,000 uh, accounting skill tokens, but they might also have, um, you know, 50,000 marketing skill tokens, 4,000 and they're like photography skill tokens, and maybe... Two thousand fidget spinner tokens, like from some. So, the, and this is the cool thing. So, you can have these completely obscure skills that pop up out of nowhere, um, that really have no marketable, marketable, no economic um, value attached to them. But you can actually have micro economies emerge around those those skills and those interest topics, and have people quantify themselves, level up that skill, so level up fidget spinning, and now that they're leveled up, the economy can actually. Um, be self-aware of what those people are interested in in such a way that anytime a task comes into that economy anytime someone needs a fidget spinner <laughs> task done or a 3d printed fidget spinner it can then automatically route that task directly to the person who is good at it because uh, they're quantified and ranked and that person can immediately claim it so you also ideally get around this idea of you know platforms like upwork and freelancer they're always a bidding war to the bottom. They're always some employer trying to get the cheapest labor they possibly can. With this model, I'm hoping to flip it so that to get the best labor, to get the best person at that task, you pay more. And the more you're willing to pay, the higher you get matched to that person. Um, and it's all about ideally trying to get to a point where we can decouple the employer-employee relationship, uh, diversify people's skill sets, so that you know if one of their skill sets gets automated, they have instantaneous fallbacks um, because work is constantly coming to them. And then they can just pursue their own passions regardless of economic outcomes. So I hate the system now where people, you know, they take university and college degrees because they need to get a good job. They don't do it necessarily because they're interested in it. Or they take the first job offer they get because that's what they've got. And so you end up going down this career path that is just going towards something you're just not interested in at all. And so you end up with these people locked in these, these jobs that they hate, working for employers that... (laughs) <laughs> they hate and and the stats show that something like 50 to 60 percent of all workers in, in most developed countries hate their job and so that's a really bad it's not an optimized system it's not maximizing human output and potential so if we can have a system where people can just pursue their interests pursue their passions pursue their skills um, and then have work come to them then it means that everyone becomes their own boss their own freelancer but we're actually routing tasks in a very optimized and efficient way
0: yeah, right. I can see I can see that developing to the point where, you know, the society is sort of able to present moonshot goals, and then provide a bounty on them, and then people will self-direct their own education in, in pursuit of those bounties. Also, yeah, yeah.
1: you know, I, and oh. you can even do stuff where you like. I mean, you can still have like instantaneous little companies fire up or little projects fire up and then dissolve. So it's it's a much more fluid. System rather than having these rigid hierarchies,
0: and then and then of course you know if we're going to science fiction this we're talking about these uh, you know flash mob style companies appearing within the social and you know tech infrastructure context of these Lego style grid buildings that you're talking about that you know these these arcologies of modular you know these reefs of like modular vehicle units so it's like the message goes out on social media that everybody who wants to come here you know just pull your rv up to this thing and we'll make a little festival Yeah, yeah you know from floor 17 to 21 of this building on this day (laughs) <laughs> you know, and then, like, everybody just gets their own. And it, I could see the future of, of uh, tech startups and, you know, political activity, you know, the protest, et cetera, basically being, mm. like, uh, you know, when, like, all the bikers pull up at once, you know, and just take yeah. over your bar.
1: Yeah. So you could even have stuff like, you know, like I guess Burning Man is kind of a good example of what people understand as like, you know, things that come together and then depart. But you could have, you know, instantaneous burning mans that just happen on the hour around some particular topic or interest or project. So you could be like, I want to do this thing, or let's discuss let's just discuss the future and you know, let's discuss this particular particular topic and then instantaneously because ideally, no one has a work, that, a job they have to be at in this <laughs> reality. And they just instantaneously come together and form a little community. Or you could even form like an entire city. So uh, at the end of the, the post, I, I basically hinted at the idea that, well, you know, I, I've talked about vertical towers, and obviously the towers would have to be fixed initially. But, well, why not have entirely decentralized modular cities? Like, imagine a city where you just like, you just map out a, say, you know, five by five kilometer or, you know, a massive brick of, of flat land, Um, and you know, you make it a hard surface and then you just, everything on top of that is just completely movable and modular. So you can have order, you can have a, a skyscraper form here and then you can move it over there and you could have bridges form and you could have parks form and you can just have literally every single piece of the city is just completely modular and moving by the hour. Um, you could even do things like a B testing cities, uh, you know working out the the highly optimum model that maximizes human creativity and happiness inside of those those cities as well as giving individuals the ability to instantly say, hey, I just want to I want to go live over here now with these other people or I want to go live in this community um, and you could do some amazing things that way.
0: I just wonder, I mean, you know, when I was at Arcosanti, which is Palos Soleri's project in in Arizona, you know, his his archaeological experiment. I saw this lecture by Mark Lakeman who is uh, he he founded co-founded the the City Repair Project up in Portland, Oregon. And he was talking about streets and how streets were once the area of cultural activity that they were the location of the commons in space, and that now the street is a death trap. It's a, it's like an it's it's a you know you the, one of the first things you do is train your children to be wary of this spot. So you know I just uh, I you know I wonder on a very basic level on a very like uh, embodied spatial level what happens to the mode and efficacy of human cultural adhesion when we're all just sort of we've sort of become this gas or this like fog of swiftly moving never truly still just modular hubbub you know like this anthill of of ne- fluid activity, you know.
1: Yeah, would it be negative or positive? There were a few comments on my post about that. Some some people immediately went to the idea of that sounds terribly isolating and dystopian. And then I <laughs> then I was trying to say, well, yeah, but you can instantaneously meet up with your friends and have it open into a big entertaining area where your friends can hang out, or you can like instantaneously live with your family or in like near your family or with your friends. You know, unlike. And, like, now, if you want to try and live next to your friends, well, good luck. you got to hope that the the price is right and, you know, you can get into that house and it's actually available and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, there, there could definitely be some negative outcomes on the whole, like, if people are constantly changing and, and morphing, like, is our, our brains adapted to that yet? Or, you know, is the, you know, but, but I guess that was kind of like the natural human thing, um you know, the early humans, we weren't nomadic, we weren't like constantly moving and adapting. So maybe it's just that we've, because we've lived in these, these fixed entities, like these cities where we have fixed housing, and we have a fixed job we go to, and everything's kind of where it is, and where we know, you know, we're aware of it, then maybe it's, maybe that's the artificial thing. Maybe we just have to like, go back to a more nomadic thing and be more uh, kind of, comfortable with change considering changes happening more rapidly now.
0: Huh? Yeah. I like that. I mean, you know, I, I guess the alternative is like, uh, the Farcaster network and Dan Simmons, Hyperion books where it's like everyone, the rich people can just establish these, these like, uh, gateways between rooms in their mansions that are all on different planets, you know? Yes. And so we, we, we completely lose you know every every physical location becomes like a website and you can just sort of bump around from site to site and they're connected more by their metaphorical association or their their proximity to one another in idea space than they are you know i I, I see that as sort of being a thing you know it's like where it's already the case that we are culturally very far away from the people we live next door to in many cases in this mm. time, you know? And so that's, that's really only going to continue. I think it, to the extent that what if, for example, like I already know people that are working on these, these sort of membership based uh, international hotel hybrid services where the tech nomads can kind of just bump around from, hip destination city to destination city and always have sort of a, a spot waiting for them and i could see there being sort of like a like religious pilgrimage slash secret society membership type deal where you know wherever you go in every city around the world the masonic temple is like waiting for your driverless rv to like <laughs> plug into it you know or like your You've got a subscription to, you know, Disney hotels or whatever, and it's just like there's always a parking space for you. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> that's pretty cool. Well, I, I, I just one thing that could happen is uh, physical filter bubbles. <laughs> that could be an that. interesting thing. Uh, well, you know, there's obviously the issue right now where we have filter bubbles online with social media, and that's causing. You know, a lot of the early people who created Facebook are now saying that, you know, what we've created is actually now tearing apart the fabric of society. Because Oops. we've created these filter bubbles where suddenly people who couldn't find each other can now find each other. So the flat earthers can all find each other and they, they hang out in their little crowd and they keep their little, you know, alternative facts to themselves and, and kind of hype each other up. So maybe one potential outcome, one you know, dystopian outcome, could be physical filter bubbles where you choose to live with the people you identify with, which is great in one sense because like you might want to like hang out with people who have similar ideas and you can you know flourish and be more creative with those type of people. But then you might have the the neo-Nazi driverless camp and you might have the <laughs> the anti uh driverless camp and you get these physical manifestations of phys- uh, of filter bubbles popping up. That could be. Interesting. There's there's definitely a Hollywood movie in there somewhere. Well, um. yeah,
0: that seems that seems uh like inevitable on one level, yeah. you know, and it seems and it seems also like in some sense preferable when you talk about how, you know, the possibility of looking back on jobs as a form of slavery or like equivalent in this ongoing process, this trend of emancipating the human species, then I think it's it's also arguable that The issue of mobility across, you know, at one point, like tribal boundary lines and now national borders is a similar historical project. And that what we're looking at is the opening up over the same time horizon, you know, the next whatever 50 to 100 years that we're talking about of the relaxation of borders and the reorganization of human communities into communities much more determined by affiliation than uh, geopolitical history. But I yeah. don't know.
1: Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, dude, um, you're. I think you're a very interesting guy. I'm really glad that you took the time to talk with me. Where Where can people follow up with you and and stay abreast of the work that you're doing and get involved and all that
1: uh so just follow me on uh medium so just medium.com slash at nathan waters and and also Peerism, so dot org. and so yeah i'll be doing a lot more things with those two and and then yeah check out keep an eye out for driverless hotel rooms and van rooms because i think that's going to be and and that meme's out there now. That meme's embedded in so many minds. The payload's been distributed, and so we'll see how it see how it plays out in society. Now that so many people have have latched onto that I- that I- idea.
0: Yeah, if you want to work on these things, this is your guy. Work with this guy on this project because yeah. I I want one. I want I, I I've been saying since twenty I don't know fourteen maybe that I want to buy a solar powered driverless, amphibious RV Ooh. with Bitcoin. <laughs> Please, like, make it so. Dude, thank you so much for being on this show.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been awesome.
0: Let's add this at the end, dude, because that's an important <laughs> idea. Yeah, just say something about that real quick.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, so, so one thing I didn't mention is that um, the beauty of the blockchain is that the blockchain now all allows things to essentially own and manage themselves. So there was an idea probably about five years ago when when self-driving cars were first kind of hitting the scene and blockchain was was starting to hit the scene. Um, There's this awesome, I think, a BBC article that was mentioning how driverless cars could own themselves Um, because on the blockchain, you can actually have objects have their own bank account, their own secretary, their own lawyer, their own, you know, uh, everything because you can have your own wallet address. And so the idea with a driverless car would be that it's, it's going out all day and driving people around, essentially like an Uber, picking them up, um, charging them a fee, it then collects that fee into its wallet. It can then use that wallet to save up funds, to then put um, itself in for maintenance, add, buy more cars to add to its fleet, and <laughs> do all these crazy things with, with literally no human owner. Like, it, the car, I think that's the thing a lot of people don't realize is what can be happen here, is like the car can quite literally own itself, not even a no company, no no human that owns it. And that's cool. With So the idea of these driverless v- rooms and driverless van homes, this is where we have a, the opportunity now to completely break the rentier class, to com- completely break the idea of human ownership. Because at the moment a human wants, owns something, it now has the legal right to extract economic rents and to extract profit. That's why people want to own houses, you know, property in, investment houses at least. Um, so, we could actually have a system where these, these driver's rooms, these driverless van homes own themselves and operate themselves. They still charge a fee, but because they, they don't have the profit incentive that, that drives humans, these things can operate at zero profit. So, they have no incentive to charge anything beyond uh, their operating costs. And that's awesome. That means we can drop the rent to essentially nothing. And who does this this nonprofit
0: organizations that, that like just install tracts of these or what?
1: Uh... (laughs) Well, so to get it started, you'd have to like, um, obviously to get the, to have the first self-driving car own itself, you almost have to do a little bit like Aladdin and the genie. where (laughs) where Aladdin like sets it free. So you'd have to have one altruistic person who's like, you know, they set the car free and it's this beautiful moment. And then the car goes off and it owns itself after that. Um, and I think that's the way you could do it. So you could actually have these, these driverless van hosts driverless rooms. Initially you'd probably have to have them run by a nonprofit or a foundation that operates within the existing legal structure. Um, but eventually you could have them just operate themselves and they could, initially they could charge enough profit to generate um, enough revenues to buy another car. And then once they've bought one more car then they then they drop down to zero profit. So you, you could have the economic model and the, and the pricing structure into these rental fees um, operate in such a way that they're fractal so that they're constantly doubling the supply because you'd want to you want to break the network effect of all the other manufacturers who are trying to create these privately owned you know obviously uber all the hotel chains um all the all the car manufacturers are obviously going to want to sell these things at profit to an owner and those owners are then going to want to turn around and then rent them out at profit so you end up with these excess costs on top of housing which is just stupid I mean uh-huh. I wanna break that forever. I wanna break the idea that housing is an investment vehicle. Housing is a fucking human need. <laughs> it shouldn't have a profit on top of it. It should just be something that's just, you know, operating at zero, zero profit. Still with a weekly rental fee, but just enough to cover its operating and maintenance costs and to buy another van that owns itself or another room that owns itself. So yeah, and I just wanted th- to add that.
0: And and then of course, you know, if, if ultra efficient solar panels and you know, micro wind power generators are affixed to every one of these objects then they could each be selling electricity back to the grid and actually you know making money even when they're sitting still and then of course you've got you know like style and culture subscriptions that you know you could you could have people subscribed in like a like a uh, you know a content model where people are actually streaming the dreams of the ai that you cultivate like you have like a garden of little designer minds you know that are like putting out new music for people on a regular basis so i mean i i see it in a weird way i see it going back to this sort of like the anchorite monks that live in the wall of the monastery they're always between and they receive their food from one side and they receive letters from the other side and in a way there's there's this like I said about the resolution of the sedentary and the nomadic in this model, it seems like there's a, a resolution of the introvert and extrovert. You can always just, like, windows tint to black, yep. you know, <laughs> and then be out there. Anyway, dude, thanks so much. That was great. Thanks. Thanks, man. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, a truly excellent cornucopia of mind-expanding podcasts. And is brought to you in part by our featured Patreon supporter Mike Schwab, who works at knowyourmeme.com and has donated his weekly call-out to Know Your Meme, which is a truly cool site if you're not familiar with it. It's an exercise at scale in what WJT Mitchell would call a paleontology of the present. A wiki-based effort to pre-digest the ridiculous abundance of memes and internet culture for those future unborn historians this show attends to so frequently that's just a fancy pants way of saying it is an extremely cool site about memes you should go check it out if you would like to support future fossils go to patreon.com slash michael garfield Or just leave the show a review on your podcasting platform of preference. It's hugely helpful, and I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and I'll have the next episode up in the geological blink of an eye.